Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. So the book written by Andrew Glickson with a wonderful chapter uh, about human evolution by Colin Groves is called Climate, Fire and Human Evolution. And I'm particularly impressed, of course, by the subtitle as well, which is the deep time dimensions of the Anthropocene, which is something that we have to consider as we put the case together, which is going to go to the International Commission later this year. But I can really commend this book to you if you're interested in the least about where we, have, where we as a species have come from, but more importantly, where we're going to and how we got to the position we're in today in about the year 2016. I found the, the, the history of the planet itself a real tour de force of 4.6 billion years of planetary evolution of what we now like to call the Earth system. The fact that this planet is a single complex system that sometimes, anyway, exists in states well-defined and transitions in between them, and often does weird and wonderful things that are difficult to predict and understand. And the chapter that Colin contributed I found particularly interesting after having coming back from Ethiopia a year or so ago and walking into the National Museum in Addis Ababa and being met, met by a sign saying, hello, my name is Lucy, welcome home. <laughs> and. Uh, Colin's chapter convinced me it wasn't as simple as that. But I, and he'll talk about that in a few minutes. But I just want to make a few comments um, about the, the, the back end of the book, which I found absolutely fascinating. Is after Andrew has taken us through a really wonderful planetary tour of four plus billion years, the last couple of chapters are fascinating because they go into a more philosophical mode of where we might be going as a species and how we are now intertwined, our future is intertwined with the dynamics of the Earth's system at the planetary level for the first time that that has actually happened. I just want to tell you a, a brief story before I turn it over to some colleagues that I think says it all about, about where we are now in terms of the Anthropocene. So as part of the evidence we're putting together, we're trying to catalog human impact on planet Earth. Of course, the planet has been around for 4.6 billion years. It's seen a lot of changes. And I could quote you a lot of statistics, but the one that really, really strikes in my mind is um, some work by a Canadian biogeochemist named Vaclav Smil. And Smil in 2002 did an analysis of the terrestrial biosphere. And what he did was a very simple thing, but very profound. And he looked at the biomass of all the creatures, the vertebrates, those of us with backbones, so that's mammals, birds, amphibians, reptiles, on the terrestrial surface of planet Earth. And what he came up with is if you look, take the totality of the biomass as 100%, he found that human domesticates, that is cattle, sheep, pigs, dogs, what have you, comprise nearly two-thirds, 65%, of the, all the terrestrial vertebrate biomass on the planet. And then he turned to us, Homo sapiens sapiens, just us. Now 7.3 billion, but back then in 2002 it would have been 6 point some billion. We comprise 32% of the biomass of planet Earth. All of the wild vertebrates, all of the mammals, the elephants, the tigers, the wombats, the roos, whatever, all of the reptiles, all of the birds, and all the amphibians comprise a bit less than 3% of all the terrestrial biomass on planet Earth. So as he said, welcome to the Anthropocene. That's quite a striking figure. But then it was very interesting. Uh, in in um, December, I was at the AGU, American Geophysical Union meeting in San Francisco. And we, at the end of it, we had a very interesting performance at the major 
theater in San Francisco put on by our, an artistic group. It was called Bella Gaia, Beautiful Earth. And it was mainly images from the space station, International Space Station, with some commentary from NASA astronauts, and with some on-the-ground performances as we zoomed in to certain places like the Indo-Gangetic Plain. We then had some wonderful Indian dancers performing the dance of, of the sacred Ganges and the importance of water on the planet, bringing together art and humanity. But I was still in my mind thinking what Smill was, was talking about. Is that as we saw those beautiful images from space, you wouldn't appreciate that over 97% of the biomass was us and our, our domesticates. On the way back to the hotel, I happened to walk out with the, one of the astronauts. So he and I were walking back and talking a bit and uh, asking about some of his experiences. And just to put in perspective how wacky the Anthropocene actually is, he said he had the great pleasure of going up to the International Space Station with the cosmonauts uh, from Russia. And they, he took off from their space station in Kazakhstan, uh, launched. He said as he got ready, the routine seemed very familiar as he got into the capsule and so on, until at the last minute they handed him a rifle. <laughs> and he just said, what? What's this rifle all about? And, he, and the cosmonaut said, oh, yeah, I can explain this. He said, we don't like bailing out over China. Bad news. So we have to take a different trajectory when we take off and go into orbit. We go over Siberia. And he says, if we have to abandon, and we did that once, we abandoned in the wilds of southern Siberia. And the last cosmonauts who did that nearly got taken by wolves. So now as a precaution, we take all cosmonauts are, are, are issued with rifles. So here we are with the International Space Station probably showing us more about planet Earth in the Anthropocene than any other observation technique. We have less than 3% wild animals, vertebrates left on planet Earth, and yet we still have to have rifles to protect ourselves. So that was a nice uh, introduction to what the Anthropocene is all about, unpredictable. I'm going to stop there and turn it over to people who know more about the geology and the human evolution of, of, of planet Earth to tell you about their um, impressions of the book. But my final comment will be, the last part of the book, the last two chap chapters, are an amazing um, philosophical tour of where we might be going with the Anthropocene, uh, written, I think, very thoughtfully from Andrew. And I would really commend you very much uh, to, to get the book, even if it's only those chapters. But don't forget the front bit. The history of Earth is uh, amazingly fascinating as well. I'd like now to turn it over to Steve Eggins uh, from the Research School of Earth Sciences here at ANU, who's going to give a few comments also on the book. Over to you, Steve. Can everybody hear me? Good. <laughs> uh, hard act to follow after Will. I mean, somebody who's spent so much time thinking about the Anthropocene and, and what we're doing to Earth's environment. Um, most of my work has been, and my colleagues' work at RSES, has been very much concentrated and focused deeper back in time. And I'll, I'll give you a, my personal assessment of, of what uh, Andrew and Colin have done with this book. I, I won't go into any great detail, but let me just start by thanking them for putting together what is a really uh, engaging and compelling book to read, and, and one that is importantly, so scientifically accurate. Um, that's a major tribute to Andrew, I think, who, who is a specialist in deep time and has really put together this entire history for us of Earth so that we can actually engage with that history and understand it. Um, and in my own case, uh, and I'll tell you why, that's of um, particular significance. So what Andrew and Colin have done is they take us through it for this tour through Earth history and time and the history of the evolution of the Earth and particularly with that earliest part of Earth history, a period that Andrew really knows so well and is able to paint such a fabulous picture. Um, so he, he tells us in, in, in such a wonderful way about how violent it was um, and really how foreign it was to the Earth that we know today. 
And, and that's a really important thing to understand, I think, about Earth, is it's had this incredible history that, that has been so different to the history that we understand Earth to be and, and Earth's environment to be like today. Um, so Andrew really thoroughly documents and describes the natural processes that have shaped and reformed Earth, often catastrophically, um, through this really fabulous and most interesting past. Uh, and how we has, and he moves on to show how we as humans uh, have, be have begun to shape and radically change Earth's environment and, and uh, Will has been really giving us his assessment of to what extent that we're really doing that today and it is really quite alarming. Uh, so, and that really paints a rather disturbing picture of the possible future that we're faced with. Something really special about the book and is the illustration in a small number of places of the photographs that Andrew has taken in the field in Western Australia. And they, Andrew not only uses those to paint a scientific story, uh, but it also gives us an insight along with Andrew's poetry, an insight into what has motivated Andrew to write the book, I think, in the first place. And that's his um, deep love of the earth that we currently have. Um, and I think that's very important to understand, that, that deep motivation that's really driven Andrew to do this and provide us with this special work. Here at ANU, I have the privilege of teaching a first year introductory class on Earth system science called the Blue Planet. Um, it's really a simplified version of this book, very simplified version, uh, that leaves out human evolution and the role that humans' control of fire has played, particularly in recent time. Uh, so, like Andrew and Colin, what I do in, in presenting this course is focus on on the events through time, many of them truly catastrophic, not all, but many, that start and end the more quiescent periods in, in, that we know as geological periods, the Cambrian, the Ordovician, all these names that we know from our experience and knowledge of geology, whether it be here at university or school or that we've just picked up. And it's really, it's the start and ends of those periods that are really the most interesting parts of geological time. That's when the really interesting things happen. And Andrew's done a fabulous job in painting a picture with the available scientific evidence and data to tell us what those events were like, how they shaped the Earth, and what the changes were, and how they changed, in particular, the course of evolution, and how, in turn, the biology changed the course of the environmental evolution of Earth. That is no small feat, and I've mentioned that before. Putting all of this together, understanding it, and assembling it for the rest of us to understand is, is a truly magnificent job. And I'll actually be going back and revising my course and using quite a lot of the information that Andrew has put in here, because he's brought up some really interesting points. And one of those, as an example, is just the extent to which uh, burning of biomass uh, back in the, in, in, at the end of the Carboniferous and periods like that, uh, when we had such high oxygen levels in the atmosphere, that have, I wasn't aware of that we had the evidence to suggest that they were, that had actually occurred. So, to really draw to more of a close, Andrew has definitely painted us a, a picture of, of and use the scientific basis to really paint a solid picture of how the Earth has evolved through time. Um, in some ways, that's a tribute to the ability of geochemists, paleo paleoecologists and paleontologists to really put together with great accuracy and reliability the nature of past environments. And I, I have the true joy of um, sharing a workplace with the people who do this sort of work, and it really is inspiring and it, it truly is a great achievement that we're able to do this.
Um, however, I don't think, I can't think of anybody that has managed to put it all together in the same way that Andrew has and Colin have in, in, in this book and tell the story in such a compact and digestible way while still keeping all the scientific bases together. Um, personally, like, uh, like Will, I found the last two chapters to be uh, the most interesting and truly most compelling parts. These are parts that I, I hadn't really considered in great detail in the past, um, before now. Um, so it was, really, it was really that change from us being human evolution being controlled by the environment to, to us actually controlling the environment. Um, and, and that is just such a fundamental change. And I guess the, um, for want of a better word, the scary part of that is our seeming inability to recognise this and to draw back from our current course um, of action with the burning of fossil fuels. Uh, even if we do manage to do that, of course, simple earth system science says that all the feedback effects will uh, propagate into the future in a way that even if we stop burning all our fossil carbon tomorrow, that we would still have continued warming for a significant period of time. And it would take tens to hundreds of thousands of years for the earth to return to the state that it was in before we started this. That's a very, very sobering thought. Um, so the question is, can we do anything about that? And that's a really, really difficult uh, question to answer without actually going about and trying to engineer more change of the environment, of Earth's environment. Uh, that's the state we're in. Um, so just finally, in, in regard to the human evolution uh, part of the story, uh, I'd been involved in dating human fossils for the last 10 years or so with some colleagues at RSES and others from around the world. And I'd only, because of my background as a geochemist, I'd only really been interested in how accurately and how reliably we could date these things, right? And I hadn't really taken much interest in the human evolution and the human migration story that goes along with it. And this book has really sparked that interest now. And I would uh, urge all of you to, to read it and also enjoy that possibility that Andrew and Colin have provided us with. So just join me in thanking them both for writing such a fabulous book. because now I'd like to call on Colin Groves, one of the co-authors of the book, and in particular has given us these very detailed insights into where we as a species have come from. So if you have any interest at all about where you came from in the longer sense, longer term sense, uh, you've got to read this chapter because it's probably the most complete and up-to-date account I've seen of the evolution and migration and spread of Homo sapiens around the planet. Over to you, Colin. Can you hear? I, uh, it's, it's a race between my voice and my eyes, which get weaker. Excuse me if I read something. I thought that um, uh, I'd use this occasion to talk about something that um, occurred to me as I was writing it, and afterwards, as I watch television, as I read the pages of newspapers like the Camera Times. And I thought, um, I've heard all this before. If you teach or research in an evolutionary subject, particularly human evolution, you will sooner or later come into contact with creationists. And if your work is fairly high profile, 
and gets into the media, it will be sooner. And so it was that I become, and began to become quite familiar with creationists. They're of two kinds. Those who desperately want to believe that the entire Bible or some other sacred book is true, right from the beginning of Genesis in the case of the Bible, and those who tell them that it is indeed true and that evolution is not just untrue, it is a lie. The anxious audience, so grateful to be told that the Bible is true and that evolution is a lie, and the speakers, the leadership, so delighted to be believed and to be looked up to. The creationist leadership tend to share certain characteristics. They are glib and they have all the arguments at their fingertips. They know the sort of spiel that will please the audience because, after all, the audience anxiously wants to believe that evolution is untrue. They puff up their credentials. The books list their degrees on the cover. Note that this book is by Andrew Grigson and Colin Groves. Creationist books are by, to name a particularly um, prolific creationist author, by Ken Ham, BSC. And their qualifications are always written large on the cover to uh, make people know that they are, after all, actually qualified in some scientific or other endeavour. And creationist leaders change the language. So creationism is not merely a belief in a God who created, but the insistence that that God created exactly what was recounted in the Bible. And when asked how they explain the contrary evidence, the fossil record, for example, they tell you about creation science. How, when properly interpreted, science shows how the ordering of the fossil record is exactly what you would expect when sediments were laid down by Noah's flood. No acknowledgement of the context in which evolution took place, earth history, radiometric dating, genetic change, that sort of thing. Just sniping around the edges, telling plausible stories about what their audience may perceive to be particular problems. In scientific circles, an evolutionist is somebody who is interested in or does research in evolutionary theory. In creationist spiel, an evolutionist is someone who believes in evolution. Evidently, they've read George Orwell, who showed how in his book 1984, if you change the language to give it the meaning you want, a different mode of thought becomes impossible. So they talk of evolutionists. Creationists predict the imminent demise of the theory of evolution. A book published in 1985 had the title Evolution, a Theory in Crisis. Evolution is not merely wrong, it is a lie. The public is being fooled. Presumably, that is why the theory that was in crisis as much as 30 years ago is still going strong. Scientists, they say, are turning away increasingly from belief in evolution, and so on. Trying to argue with creationists, especially with the leadership, is like trying to eat ice cream with a pair of chopsticks. They're impossible to pin down. You tell them about the increasingly dense record of the evolution of birds, and they say, ah, but how could whales have evolved from land animals? Show me a whale with legs. And when you not only show them a whale with legs, but you uh, proceed to tell them about the good record of the Eocene origin of whales, the response is, ah, but bats suddenly appeared, didn't they? See, no intermediates. I regret to say that uh, in several conversations like this, which I have had, I have never been rude enough to point out how dishonest my creationist adversary is being. And when I think later, how can an audience fail to see this as well? 
I reflect that, of course, they want to believe that creationism is true, that evolution is a lie which is about to be unmasked. They want to believe it with every fibre in their being. They want to believe that evolution is untrue, therefore it is untrue. And now, quite suddenly, we have the new creationism. Climate change denial. They have the willing audience and the leadership. Like the creationist leadership, the climate change denialist leaders are glib, with all the arguments at their fingertips. Like creationists, they have no concept of the wider context. They simply snipe at the edges. Canberra's record high temperature was in 1939. How about that? I read in the Canberra Times. Like creationist leaders, they exaggerate their credentials. Lord Monckton, Christopher Monckton, claims to be a member of the House of Lords. The, uh, he isn't, in fact. And the actual House of Lords in 2011 had to publish a cease and desist letter they had written to him. Like the leading creationists, they try to change the language. An attempt by a letter writer to the Camera Times to call those who accept the reality of climate change warmists has not caught on, but they seem to have succeeded in persuading the general public to call them sceptics. Let's get this straight, they're not sceptics. Scepticism is an honourable intellectual stance without which science could not progress. They are deniers. Like the creationist leaders, they claim that science is really on their side. When Tony Abbott, having wrested the Liberal leadership from Malcolm Turnbull in 2009, declared, climate change, the science, it isn't there. He was not, or not merely, reaching down into the depths of his very considerable ignorance. <laughs> he was claiming scientific backing for himself. Recently, the chief executive of CSIRO disgracefully more or less shut down climate change research in that formerly prestigious organisation. If you're in a position of power, you see, if you're one of the leaders, you can make science what you want. In the USA, but not yet in Australia as far as I know, scientists working on climate change have received death threats. This is one instance in which climate change denial seems to have gone further than evolution denial. Like the anti-evolution audience, the anti-climate change audience desperately want to believe that climate change is untrue. Therefore, it is untrue and you should not preach the contrary. What all this is telling us is that a considerable chunk of the general public there were more considerable chunk in, Aust in the USA than in Australia, I think, simply does not know what science is. They think it is a way to prove what you want to be true. And the past neglect of science education is to blame. We need to ensure that a situation like this does not continue. Thank you. And without further ado, we'll turn to lead author of the book, Andrew Glickson, for some comments on this, this wonderful work that he's put out. Yeah, well, okay, thank you very much, uh, Steve and Will and Steve. And thank you, Colin, for your collaboration. Uh, as uh, you have heard, I arrived from deep time, and some people would say that I should have stayed there. But studying the effects of uh, large asteroid impacts and volcanic eruptions on the rich life forms and communities which existed at um, different times of the history of the Earth, 
and the climatic and oceanic effects of these uh, uh, events, or catastrophes, has inevitably drawn my mind to the time we are living in. Because so many of the effects in terms of uh, change in the composition of the atmosphere, change in the energy of events in the atmosphere-ocean system, melting of ice, has started to look more and more familiar. But what would Darwin say about these events, evolution? Here is a species, and it's the only case in Darwinian evolution, or evolution of the Earth, where species have brought about what seems now to be, um, or referred to as a sixth mass extinction. There's only one other event where a organism, living organism, actually purple-green bacteria, during the Permian-Triassic uh, extinction event, when some 95% of species have disappeared, that uh, due to the emission of hydrogen sulfide are supposed to, and that's only a theory, but it's a likely one, supposed to have resulted, the hydro, um, hydrogen sulfide and other effects resulted in the greatest mass extinction that we know about. But here we are, a species, an intelligent species, uh, having a somewhat similar effects. How come? When I wrote the book, initially I wrote it in order to come to terms with the knowledge which all of us have. The knowledge which scientists have has become unbearable. It's worse than the knowledge of one's own mortality because if the evidence is to be accepted, and as time went on, the evidence has become more and more credible, a larger and larger body of uh, of um, evidence has emerged. If that's true, then we are living at a pivotal stage of the evolution of the Earth, as represented here on this slide. We're living at a time uh, of a major shift in state of the atmosphere-ocean cryosphere system. So initially, I started to write in order to come to terms somehow with this knowledge. Now. So it raises a question, how come? Well, there are many reasons why the Anthropocene has come into being. Of course, uh, there's still some um, difference in views about the uh, definition and the origin of the Anthropocene. Uh, the, one of the two authors of the concept, Will Steffen and his colleague, colleagues would say it started very soon, immediately after World War II. That's the gift that we got from World War II, when everything started to accelerate, in particular the atmosphere. Other people would say it's the Industrial Revolution in the 18th century and the combustion engine. And yet other ones, like Radiman, would say it went back in time and four or 5,000 years ago when humans started to clear the forests and uh, um, have livestock which emit um, methane and carbon dioxide, that's already, uh, there are already signatures for a very limited, very minor increase in greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. But here I'm looking at uh, the effect of humans at the pre-Anthropocene, if you like, or the deep time roots of the Anthropocene in terms of Darwinian evolution. And the one major factor which emerges is that no other organism in the history of the Earth, not a single one, has learned to master sources of energy which are orders of magnitude uh, greater than its own physiological expression, and that's through the harnessing of fire. Now, fire has been a, a major uh, factor in evolution of the continents ever since plants have uh, come out about 420 uh, Silurian Devonian uh, million years ago on the continent, and the exchange of carbon dioxide and oxygen facilitated by photosynthesis has resulted in the emergence of fire as a major factor in the evolution of the continents. Now comes the creature, Homo sapiens, well, before then, um, Homo erectus, which has learned how to master it. But no creature can be expected to have the a degree of wisdom, the degree of control, a degree of responsibility to limit uh, levels of energy, orders of magnitude greater than its own physiological. And because we are not perfect, 
uh, we are now looking at some of the consequences. So one factor which comes to mind, a fundamental one, is the emergence of human mastery of fire. But this is what you could call pre-anthropocene, or the deep time roots of anthropocene. But there is another factor. As, as long as a species has to um, focus its energy on hunting, gathering, and thereby survival, as prehistoric humans inevitably had to, the species will be, uh, the energies, the activities of the species will be inevitably focused on gathering and hunting, and not all that much else, except for finding shelter and procreating. However, here comes the climate. Past climates, from all we know, from paleoclimate studies, have been on and off and on and off quite violent. Uh, during periods of uh, high temperature, higher global average temperature, uh, such as the Pliocene and the Miocene, and even before then in the Mesozoic, uh, certainly any species, any intelligent species, and they are and they have been and they still are highly intelligent species apart from Homo sapiens, even if they had the idea of mastering fire, even if they had the idea of uh, growing food or agriculture, would most likely, that's not proven, but most likely been unable to grow food, grow, uh, develop in farming. And it is farming and it is harnessing of livestock which creates the excess food and thereby the excess um, facilities for human or any other creature to develop civilization. It is in the Holocene, there have been quite, relatively quiet periods before the Holocene, but it is about 7,000 years ago that the conditions have emerged. And this is when the Great River Valley civilization emerged. Uh, this is when people started to apply fire to the production of metal, uh, building of cities, and so, as they say, the rest is history. So the combination of these two factors, the mastery of fire, and the stabilization of the climate with not very long ago in human history, it's only 7,000 years, it really is a blip in the geological history of the Earth. Conditions have emerged for a species to change the composition of the atmosphere. Now, we can compare the atmosphere to uh, the lungs of the Earth, or the lungs of, of mammals or any other creature. Why? Because it's the medium which allows the exchange of carbon dioxide and of oxygen, and without our lungs, we wouldn't be able to survive without the, without the atmosphere as it is at present. The present biosphere would not be able to survive. So what's the outcome of it all? To me, personally, I find it easier to come to terms with a pivotal time, with a uh, shift in state, in condition of the atmosphere, ocean system, in terms of uh, the evolution, the geological and atmospheric evolution of the Earth, than in terms of someone's fault. The species is imperfect, and it includes many people who are both ignorant and arrogant, but it also includes many very wonderful people. So the question is, are we going to look at what's happening now in terms of personal responsibilities? Yes, I think to a large extent we have to. But in terms of an understanding and thereby trying to come to terms with this pivotal shift that we're looking at, perhaps looking, at the, looking in perspective of the history of the Earth uh, can actually help the way that we can come to terms or otherwise with events in our own time. Now, as um, Colin has said, climate scientists have been accused of being warmest and alarmist, all the rest of it, but we're not more so than medical scientists when they're looking at an individual patient. Climate scientists have done their absolute best, absolute utmost, and one of the heroes is sitting here, it's Will Stephan. There is no other scientists in Australia at least, but also internationally, who has uh, put such an effort, uh, such a productive effort into um, publicizing and explaining and um, climate change as, as we now know it does exist. 
So is there an outcome to any conclusion to what I was saying? For myself, we have to come to terms with the fact that um, the shift in state of um, the atmosphere is a part of evolution, even though Darwin has not foreseen it. We have to come to terms with the observation that our species has mastered sources of energy which our species doesn't have the responsibility and control and wisdom to limit. But we also have to come to terms with the enormous uh, gift which we have from nature, or some people would say from God, of having the awareness and the insight into the history of the earth, into the laws of nature, and into the meaning of life. And one last point which I'd like to make uh, is once again comes back to fire, which is the main theme of really, the central theme of the book. People who have spent uh, weeks and months and years around campfires uh, in Central Australia, and I have as a geologist, cannot avoid uh, being impressed by the effect which sitting around campfire has on the mind. And our predecessors, uh, the genus Homo, since at least two million years ago, have been living around fire, around campfire. And there's still nothing like spending every night around the fire to trigger the imagination, trigger hopes, trigger fears, trigger question, which is also possibly one of the sources of the high intelligence that our species possesses. It is the fear of death which fire uh, induces, which has induced civilization to develop or construct shrines to immortality and to create major wars. So fire has, and that's the story of, the, the story of uh, Prometheus, of course. The story of Prometheus is a story of humankind. It has been regarded as such, not only by the Greeks, it is, fire has been our greatest blessing because it allowed human to develop the awareness and the insight which we have. It's also the greatest curse in that human are not, don't appear to be able to control it. And so now we're living at a time at which we're looking at the, looking at the consequences. Thank you very much. have some time uh, for some Thank questions you. from the audience, so I'd like to invite Andrew and Steve and Colin to come up here with me. And while we're getting organized, just to remind you that there are some books up here, uh, and if anyone would like to buy a book tonight, I'm sure Andrew would oblige and sign it personally for you. So we're just getting set up. I'll probably stand up and wander around a bit while we do that. And Catherine's going to be a... a going to be running around with the mic so we can hear what the questions are. All right, we already have a couple of hands up. We'll go right up the back to Jack up there and then there. So right up the back. Um, Jack Pezzi, Fenner School, ANU. Sorry if I missed this because I missed uh, part of Colin Grove's talk, but um, does your book say anything um, to the extent that fire was necessary, as well as climate change, that fire was a necessary part of the evolution of agriculture um, 7,000 years ago? And if so, can you give us a, some idea of what the evidence is? Who wants to take that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, originally, uh, civilization developed along river valleys. And uh, there, some clearing needed to be done, but there was enough soil and enough water to develop uh, farming. It's when climate changed, and they had other floods or droughts along the river valleys, that humans had to cultivate higher grounds further away from the rivers and the water. And in these regions, at least in the vegetated parts of the world, they had to clear the land. And it's fire that was used largely to clear the land. I have a question here. Okay. Um, thanks for the uh, talk, that was uh, fantastic. 
I'm going to ask a question which might sound a little bit out of left field, but I don't, don't think it is, and particularly to you, Andrew. Um, after the Paris Agreement, George Monbiot said that, um, in his view, it was a miracle that the agreement was as good as it was, but in terms of what the science was actually saying needs to be done, it was a sort of disaster. Um, you know, what's your, what's your view about, um, you know, where we're at in terms of, um, you know, deal, dealing with the problem? And also, I thought I picked up a, a, a nuance there that maybe you think it's so, the problem is so advanced that maybe the only recourse is to engage in some geo-engineering. Uh, so I'd just like your thoughts on uh, those matters. Well, if you're asking me about Paris, my first thought is that people need hope. As nobody, I don't think you'll find any scientist who wants to take hope away from anybody. That's one of our dilemmas. That's why it's so painful to be in climate science. You need to, you have a duty to give the evidence, present the evidence in as precisely as you can. But you don't want to um, destroy people more. You don't want to depress people around you. And very much like medical doctors. Anyway, Paris has given humanity or people a great degree of hope. But when you read, when I read what they come up, like limiting uh, global temperature to 1.5 degrees Celsius, we have already exceeded it on some of the continents. When they talk about the two degrees, if you take the sulfur aerosols into account, we are already very close to two degrees. And two degrees, the equilibrium condition of two degrees is something like many meters of sea level rise, condition which existed in the Pliocene between uh, 2.6 uh, and 5.2 million years ago, when much of the lower river valleys and coastal plains as exist now have been flooded. So my thoughts about Paris is wonderful, but unless they follow it up with real action, then I don't know. There's a question down here. Yeah. Oh, we got one up there, yeah. Okay. Great, thanks. Um, I was just thinking about the Fermi paradox and how this might be something that applies to humanity in that sense that maybe this is going to be what limits our future development. What I'm wondering is what do you project is likely to happen in the long term with humanity and what is it that we need to do? And this isn't like something that we necessarily can do in 10 years, but if we're actually going to grapple this problem, what are the sort of high level things that, I know this is a bit of a, a thought bubble thing, but where, sh where should we go? You know, what should I tell my grandchildren or their grandchildren when all these effects start to come, come along? What can they do about it? Quick answer from each of the three. We'll start with Colin. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. <laughs> um, well, I think uh, we, we just have to accept that uh, the Earth is going to be a very different place from what it now is. That um, climatic belts, rainfall belts, vegetation belts, shift around in a way which, in fact, we can't entirely predict. And this is going to mean that um, uh, diseases, particularly uh, vector-borne diseases, things like malaria, and of course the ones that have come up recently, like Zika, um, are the uh, distribution of them is going to be um, completely different from what it now is. And of course, um, uh, and unless we do other things like, um, say, control our population, as well as controlling um, the way we exploit the environment, you know, the, the Earth is going to be a much, much poorer place. Steve, you want to make a comment? Uh, I'm, I'm not so sure I can really answer your question, apart to say that really the only thing we should be telling our children, our grandchildren, and ourselves, is that we need to stop burning fossil carbon. Uh, that's an immediate reaction. Uh, if we don't, we will be forced into geoengineering options. It's not clear that those options will actually work because they require so much energy in, in most cases, apart from perhaps sulphate aerosol, sulphating the atmosphere, which is a rather drastic measure and which will have uh, massive um, effects on the environment in its own right. Uh, 
the other options really are um, focused towards speeding up the return of the carbon back into the geosphere, and it's not clear that we can actually do that and speed it up to the sort of rates that would actually return the system back to something that where we'd like it to be on the timescales of decades or hundreds of years. It's more likely that they would take thousands of years, even with massive intervention. Andrew? Well, how about you, Will? Ah, I'm, I'll go last. <laughs> <laughs> yes? Last. I'll go last, if you had a comment. <laughs> well, OK, you, you're asking about the future, I suppose. Well, a friend of mine said, why, why do we worry about the past or the future? said the beauty of life is in what we're seeing in transit. That the only thing which are permanent are, are dead. Life is always in transit. And perhaps that's its main beauty. When I think about my grandparents during World War I or my parents during World War II, I wonder how they survived. Now, they saw it right around us. To us, the dangers are a bit more, feel a bit more like science fiction. We were science fiction, they are science facts, but they feel like science fiction when we're thinking about an Earth moving into a different state, fundamentally different state, which is likely to last for maybe tens of thousands of years. That's the longevity of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is considered to be long enough to even delay the next uh, glacial cycle. <coughs> so I try and do my tiny, tiny, tiny whatever I can do, but I try not to think too much about the future. Because when I think about it, about the geology of the future, if you like, uh, I think about the unthinkable. Uh, I was discussing with some of my colleagues whether we ought to have a little meeting about the geology of the future. And every single one of them declined because their service is, is such, so heavy. So I think it's a very personal uh, issue. People who have faith in God or faith in nature or any kind of faith are and will be able to cope so much better. Yeah, thanks. <clears throat> I'll make a comment on that too. Um, you probably hear me all right. One of the things that's coming through my travels and talking to a lot of people on this issue um, is a really interesting perspective. And it comes from the fact that the Anthropocene, the, the sort of great changes we're talking about now, have actually largely been driven by 18% of the human population. And we showed that quite clearly in our great acceleration graphs that we published last year. That the OECD countries comprise 18% of the human population, but we're driving three quarters of the consumption and the emissions and all this. When you count, count, count of the, take account of the fact that China's producing a lot of stuff that we consume, we've simply offloaded our production somewhere else, but we're still consuming it. So when you take that into account, it's a very, very uneven world. So one of the themes that's coming through is the inequalities, not only between countries, but within countries. A second theme that's coming through very strongly from a whole different range of people is that the fundamental problem is what Peter Half, a physicist from the US, calls the technosphere. That we have now been so, become so beholden to the technosphere that we've created that we are detached from the biosphere. So a lot of people are saying, whether it's scholars from the Stockholm Resilience Center, whether it's indigenous people here and in other parts of the world, saying, hey, you guys, that's what your problem is. You've forgotten that you're part of planet Earth. And Andrew described it really beautifully, I thought, of sitting around a fire is a very fundamental thing. But you do that, or you enjoy it most when you're out in the bush or when you're out in, in nature. And, and, it's, and it is, I think, a fundamental part of our evolutionary history. But people are saying we've detached ourselves from our evolutionary history now. And the common phrase I keep hearing now is it's, it goes way beyond technologies, geoengineering, goes way beyond economic instruments. It's a fundamental problem that we've detached ourselves from the planet that we evolved into. And we need to go back to that. And so it's, it's, it's so I guess what I'm saying is that, that the Anthropocene is, is really challenging, um, in particular the post-World War II um, society that we've created. That it's very unequal and, and of course, 
extremely um, challenging for planet Earth. It was captured by two books that came out within the last 12 months, two years. One of them was by Thomas Piketty, a French economist, who said, and, he, and it's based on observation, not theory, that capitalist systems generate inequality. It's just the nature of them, unless you regulate it. And coming from a completely different direction, Naomi Klein said the same thing, is that a capitalist system says fossil fuel companies have to keep finding fossil fuels, hence non-conventional fossil fuels. And it's, but it's the same system that's generating these problems and detaching us from the biosphere. So that's sort of a really very simplistic, but I think, um, I think a pretty accurate uh, sense of what I'm seeing as I go around the world and talk about the Anthropocene. So let's get some more questions. Jenny's got the mic up there. We've got a couple down here then. Um, 2014 was a record hot year and 2015 was a, you know, even hotter by a big margin. And now we find that January was the hottest year on, hottest January on record. Last month, February was the hottest February on record. Um, I'm starting to panic, sorry. <laughs> um, we find that some of the temperatures in the Arctic have been 16 degrees above normal, uh, above average this, this their winter. Um, are we reaching a tipping point? Is, is, is it all coming much faster than we thought? Quick answer on that, I think we've probably passed one in the northern high latitudes. I think we've passed the tipping point. There, there, there are numerous regional tipping points. Uh, to me, the question is, when do we cross enough of these that we're going to move the Earth into a, a system where there's no northern hemisphere ice? That's probably the next stage. And nobody knows where that is, but it probably lies somewhere um, around two or three degrees warming, which would get us into a Pliocene state, as Andrew pointed out to you. But I think we have crossed a tipping point already in, in the far north. Uh, be expressed initially in Arctic sea ice. I think that's history. It's just a matter of when. Let's get a couple questions down, down here. Uh, hello, it's working, yeah. Um, I'd like to thank the speakers very much for, for their talks tonight. And I think we can all see why um, Colin Groves is a, a valued life member of Australian skeptics. <laughs> Not the deniers. <laughs> um, about the Anthropocene, I calculate that uh, if there is any sentient life a couple of million years from now, they'll be looking at a, a stratum only about four centimeters thick. If you don't count brecciated cities and things like that, are we that important? Yeah, yes. There, 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 are two, there are two views on that. The stratigraphic view, and I might let Steve talk about that, and the Earth system view, which is the thing that Andrew and I have been talking about. From the Earth system uh, point of view, absolutely yes, uh, because we're, we are committed to transitioning into a state that isn't the Holocene, that's for sure. Whether we go out of the late quaternary um, cycles of glacial interglacial, approximately 100,000 years, that's debatable. In fact, there is some evidence that we might have emitted enough CO2 to already push us out of that. We don't know. In terms of the biosphere, there is a lot of evidence now that we are way outside of anything that resembles a Holocene biosphere. I gave you one fact. And biospheric change is pretty much one direction. You're not going to go back to what you had. Tony Bernofsky from Berkeley is, is, and Mark Williams from UK are now claiming that we are entering the, the third major stage of biospheric evolution in the entire history of the planet. That we are now triggering a change that's equivalent to the change from an anoxic state to an, to an ox oxygen-dominated state. So in that regard, Earth system science point of view, there is no doubt that this is a massive change to the system. We can quibble about how much and how fast the climate's going to change, but there's no doubt we're outside of a Holocene climate. Andrew, I don't know what Steve wanted. I was just going to point out that from a stratigraphic viewpoint, from a geological viewpoint, the larger the, the larger the size of the change in the Earth system, the more catastrophic it is, usually the smaller the time period over which it occurs. And in fact, for the PETM period, which is an analogue, the, the closest analogue we have in the past to what we're doing to the Anthropocene, it, 
we didn't even know the PETM existed until the early 90s because we'd missed, we'd missed it. It's such a small event, you really have to know what you're looking for to find it. Thanks. I, th I think that the slides that you're looking at gives perspective for what's happening now. The middle of the uh, red arrow is where we actually almost are, or are very close to, which is two degrees. Two degrees doesn't sound much because of obviously day and night we change more than two degrees. We change 10 or 20 degrees in mountain terrains. But in terms of the average temperature of the Earth, two degrees can only be compared to what happens to the human body when we are at temperatures instead of 36.7, which is our normal, we are at 38 or 39. At that stage, uh, less oxygen reaches the brain, and we can't survive very long if we are at 38 or 39. Well, the Earth, the biosphere, the lungs of the Earth act in somewhat similar ways. If the temperature is higher by two degrees, new type of life forms would evolve. Again, in Darwinian evolution, there will be time. And there always has been. Life has always prevailed, life has always triumphed. The point was, it had time to do that. When you had major catastrophes, such as uh, global volcanic events or asteroid and comet impacts, this is when more than 60% and sometimes more than 90% of species disappeared, because there was no time for species to adapt. So what we're looking at now is changes, fundamental changes, which are occurring within well, since 1950, or at most a couple of centuries. And when you look at the red arrow there, we are now traveling at around two degrees and upwards towards four degrees. If coal is good, then this is where we're going. Uh, when you compare this to levels of global temperatures before, we are already above uh, the Pliocene era when temperatures were about two degrees and sea levels were 25 meters above the present ones and traveling further back into the Miocene within a couple of centuries. This is something which I think uh, many paleoclimate scientists find it just hard to come to terms with because it's just too much. Okay, we're gonna have to wind it up pretty soon, but the gentleman here has been waiting patiently, so let's get you a microphone. Sorry about that. Thank you very much. Um, Marcello Hernandez, PhD student at Crawford uh, with Bob Constance. I'm from Costa Rica, so I'm sorry for the accent. Um, I was wondering about the word Anthropocene and this, all the discussions. Um, it seems to me that you focused on our footprint, or how we have impacted the planet. But for me, it would be interesting to also to start analyzing how have been how we have been impacting ourselves. If it is the epoch of human, we should be happier or we should have less crime or war. So what, what do you think would be the research opportunities or, or the priorities that we should give to this different point of view of the Anthropocene? Because for me it's like a vicious cycle. If we would be happier, maybe we would have a different footprint on Earth. Thank you. Anyone want to have a go at that? I'll, I'll, make, I'll make a quick comment. Um, the Anthropocene that, that Andrew and Steve and Colin and I have been talking about is really defined in two ways, and they're both natural science ways, which is a stratigraphic geological way, and there's some very strict criteria for determining chronostratigraphic units and so on, and they're going through that now. And I sort of walked you through the Earth System Science view of this. But it's absolutely true that the Anthropocene, by its very nature, is spilled out into the arts, humanities, social sciences, and so on, which I think is a good thing. And it should do exactly what you're doing, is it should force us to ask those questions about, all right, if we're in a new epoch, and the, and the natural sciences have, have determined that, that actually does have, I think, powerful implications, and we should be addressing the questions that, that you're asking. I'm not an expert in that, but people like Bob Costanza are, they can talk about human well-being rather than just wealth and things like this. Very important aspects of it. And Colin. Can I make a, a comment on that? Um, human history, ever since at least the end of the Pleistocene, 
excuse me, has been um, a story of people, as it were, painting themselves into a corner. The invention of agriculture. You can't go back. Yet when you look at um, hunter-gatherer societies and uh, agricultural societies, are the people any any better, any more, any happier in the agricultural society than <clears throat> um, some societies industrialized, others not? Are the people uh, in the industrialized societies any happier than those not? And yet we can't go back. We've sort of painted ourselves into this corner, and now we've painted ourselves in, into another one. Let's take one more question here. Um, I'm currently a student at the Fenner School, and what's come through a lot actually is this demarcation between the political and the scientific communities. And so I just wanted to propose or see what you would propose to kind of foster a more fluid, a more responsive dialogue between the two bodies. Because, yeah. <laughs> <coughs> Any comments? I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's quite a question, isn't it? Politicians uh, have a very, as I said, a very vague grasp of science, if any. Um, I mean, the very fact, sorry, the very fact that uh, it's been proposed to progress with the Adani coal mine in Queensland shows how little grasp of what's going on politicians have. Even somebody like Malcolm Turnbull, who way back lost his leadership to um, Tony Abbott, and he should know because the cause over which he lost his leadership was doing something about climate change. <coughs> He's forgotten it, if he ever really internalized it. Any other comments? I'll make, I'll make one comment as a former director of the Finnish School, is we need much more of that type of research than we do people in silos. Uh, there's some wonderful examples, Stockholm Resilience Center is an example, there are other ones around who bring together philosophers, natural scientists, economists, and so on, to actually talk about these issues in a much more holistic way. We've got to go that direction, there's no doubt about it, because this problem can't be solved. Us natural scientists can define it pretty well, but there's no way we're going to solve it. Could, could I just add that, that I think a really important thing is education at school level? Yeah, absolutely, Steve, absolutely. Okay, we've run out of time. So thank you very, very much for coming along. It's been a fantastic conversation. There are some books up here, and I'm sure Andrew would love to, to sign some for you and, and have a chat with you. So thanks for coming along. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more. <laughs>